forever he will be the lamb on the throne i gladly bow my knee and worship him father we pray that this would be the reality of all of us here this morning may this not be mere words just sung there are those who have not bowed the knee to worship yet and there are those here to have themselves be satisfied father may every heart be bowed low before you this morning that you may receive the glory that you deserve we thank you for who you are and we thank you for the treasure of your word we pray that we would give full attention to you speak in your word this morning so we pray because we are needy people seeking you to move our hearts that we may be obedient for your glory in Christ's name we pray amen john chapter 4 I want to welcome elton i don't think he was welcomed last week was it your first last week first visit last week he's all the way from nelspruit i don't know what the new name is was there a new name from nelspruit yes yeah i can't pronounce it so nelspruit it is he um uh, he's from the same church that dave and emily and i think lisa as well right so all, all the nelspruitians are coming this way Uh, welcome brother and hope that uh, you find a home with us um John chapter 4 I'm going to read this and end with this and then come back next week to exposit this passage verse 22 <clears throat> You worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him god is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth this morning we are looking at the distinction what we teach about worship why do we need a sermon on worship well because there's a long history a longevity of ecclesiastical abuse around worship there's not only abuse but confusion as to what worship is and how worship should look we see how liberty in worship resulted in a roman catholic system that drove people further away from god rather than to god connected to this was a distortion of the truth this distortion of the truth resulted in false worship while history chronicles such dangers unfortunately churches today are carving their way back into unbiblical practices and forms in worship our desire is to be distinct from the extremes that exist in worship there are generally three approaches to worship let me give them to you and hopefully you will see which one is most biblical 
The discussion on worship is where orthodoxy, what do you believe, verges with orthopraxy, what you do. What you believe affects how you worship and live. It is important to delineate not only what we believe, but why we believe what we believe about worship. It's not enough to say that we believe in God, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, we believe in God's sovereignty, we believe in salvation. A lot of people say that. It's not enough to say that. Do we believe that Scripture has absolute right to regulate what we do in worship? If that is so, what then are we doing in worship? There are many extremes when it comes to worship. For instance, there is the libertarian principle, and you can understand by means of the word libertarian. This is basically do anything and everything you can in worship for the sake of the seeker. Mostly found in seeker-sensitive churches. It's pragmatic. If it works, use it. There's also those who believe in the regulative principle. This is predicated upon the belief that everything we do in worship must be specifically prescribed in Scripture. So then Scripture regulates everything, every single thing that you do. Many Calvinistic and Reformed churches hold to this view. Then there are those who hold to the normative principle. Here they believe whatever God does not forbid is free to be done in worship, and most Anglican and Lutheran churches hold to this view. Luther and Calvin were on opposite sides of the spectrum. So then, where, where should we fall? Well, fortunately, Luther, Luther and Calvin is not the standard of what should take place in the church, nor is the modern church. The scriptures is the final regulative principle on worship. On closer inspection, we find that what you believe about worship with regards to the regulative principle relates to what you believe about the church and Israel. There's a connection. If the church replaces Israel, then the commands and the practices that God requires of Israel then gets adopted by what? The church. So then everything that was legitimately done by Israel in worship becomes a practice in the church. I'm still trying to figure out liturgy in, in that because Israel didn't have that, but be that as it may. On a close inspection of the normative principle, connection to this is your view, connected to this is your view of the authority of scripture and the church. That's just Does the church have the right to create its own traditions which becomes authoritative? Catholic, Lutheran, Anglican. So it's not merely a matter of choosing regulative over normative over libertarian. There's much more to the equation than that. We at Living Hope teach that the scripture is the final authority. We believe that it also has regulative power over the church But we do not believe that every command in the Bible is given to the church. That is important. There are commands given uniquely and specifically to Israel. Go up to the mountain. We didn't come to a mountain today, did we? 
Because we are not Israel. There are some requirements that God had of Israel which are uniquely for them. Go offer a sacrifice that is not replaced by the church's sacrifice. Circumcision is not replaced by the church's baptism. The Old Testament ritualistic works in in the positive sense, um, cultic sense in the the good way, cultic can be used in a good way as well, is replaced only in one person, not in the church. It's replaced in Jesus Christ. And he fulfills all that God requires of the law. And therefore, we are a new covenant people who worship God differently to how the Jews worship God because there's an ethnic aspect to what they did um, as Jews. For instance, when they came out of Israel, what did Miriam do? She grabbed a what? Tambourine. And she danced saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. I can hear that um, some of you are thinking, well, where's the tambourine? We also believe and teach that the church can employ certain elements in worship that is not specifically mentioned in Scripture. For instance, musical instruments is not mentioned in the New Testament, yet we employ it. Choirs are not mentioned in the New Testament, yet churches have choirs. A musical leader is not mentioned in the New Testament, yet we have one. Sitting and standing is not mentioned in worship in the Old Testament, yet we do that. An opening prayer is not part and parcel of their worship in the Old Testament. They went and the priest made the sacrifice. Pastoral prayer. These are elements that are not specifically Stated in scripture, yet we have it in churches today. Why? Because it can be derived from scripture. There are certain principles we can learn from scripture and then implicitly um, imply that it, it is legitimate. For instance, sorry, in this instance, we believe that the church can employ such element without contradicting God in worship. As a whole, Scripture accommodates these activities while not specifically instructing the New Testament church to employ these activities. We also teach the priesthood of the believer that the Lord allows us to encourage participation in worship. That pretty much settles our position on worship, and that should be the the end of our sermon, right? However, There's two things that I want to do today. We do need to deal with, first of all, definitions, and then secondly, distinctions. I'm going to deal with definitions and begin distinctions. Next week, I will finish distinctions and then end on the exposition. So if you want to hear what worship is about, you have to come back next week. What do we mean by worship, and in what way are we distinct in our application of worship? So I'm laying the groundwork today, and then next week, I will finish it. Defining terms. I like reading old grammars and old, old things. I like reading old things. I picked up this definition of worship in the 1871 Cabinet Dictionary of the English Language. 
And it says, it's a noun, from worth or the terminationship, dignity, eminence, excellence, honor, respect, a title of honor used in address to certain magistrates, religious reverence and homage, adoration paid to God or to a being viewed as God, as in idolatry. Interesting. It makes a distinction between true worship given to God and then anything else. So worship can take place before the true God and before anything else which is an idol. Fast forward to 1914. Nuttall Standard Dictionary of the English language says, To adore, paying divine honors to a supreme being. Excellence of character. Where does that come from? Worthiness, a title of honor. Respect, akin to idolatry. Okay, okay. I could go with that. Fast forward to 2011 and following. Love unquestioningly (laughs) and uncritically or uh, to excess and uncritically. So love unquestioningly and uh, uncritically to excess, venerate as an idol. Many teenagers idolize the Beatles. (laughs) So religious devotion to as to a deity. Many Hindus, these are the examples, worship Shiva. Interesting. Wow. Most definitions after 2011 remove God. God is no longer as the object of worship. That is not surprising because the culture has moved to a post-God worship culture. Sad to say, churches are heading in that that direction as well. God has been replaced as the object of worship and it has been redefined as mere religious experience. D.A. Carson says, quote, Worship is the proper response of all moral sentient beings to God, ascribing all honor and worth to their creator God precisely because he is worthy Delightfully so. End quote. I don't know if I fully agree with that. Listen carefully. Worship is the proper response of all moral sentient beings to God. Do all people worship God? No. While all true worship is God-centered, Christian worship is no less Christ-centered. I agree with that. Calvin said, quote, This is indeed the proper business of the whole life in which men should daily exercise themselves to consider the infinite goodness, justice, power, and wisdom of God in this magnificent theater of God, end quote. Beautifully said. What is the focus in Calvin's quote? God. That is the substance of worship. How does the Bible illustrate worship? Genesis 22. The first occurrence of this word in its technical sense is found in Genesis 22. And you may know this story, this historical account where 
Abraham and Isaac go up to the mount. Notice in verse 5, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I'm not going to deal with the theology of this verse. There's tremendous theology in his expectation of resurrection. But that word worship literally means to bow down. From the Hebrew word shachah, to bow down. Down. It is consistently used after this as bowing down before God and sometimes before an idol. The New Testament, on the other hand, have a, a similar word. That word is used of bowing down before God. We will go and worship. Go to Matthew chapter 2. Right in the beginning of the Gospels, we have an expression of worship. Matthew 2, verse 2. This is the instance where the wise men, and it wasn't three, but the wise men came to Jesus. They asked, verse 2, saying, Where is he who is born, who has been born as king, or as our translations say, king of the Jews? He is born as king. For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to what? Worship him. You know what that word is? Proskueno or proskuneo. It is to bow down, to pay homage to, to be prostrate, lowering oneself as before God. Same meaning as the Old Testament, different uh, word in the New Testament, but same meaning. Go over to chapter 28 of Matthew. Look at verse 17. Take note of the language here. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Mm, Think about that. To the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Where do you hear that language? A mountain where God directs someone to go to. Abram and Israel, right? And when they saw him, they what? Worshipped him. That is exactly the same word as in Matthew chapter 2 verse 2. In the beginning, when Jesus was born, he was worshipped as God. At the end of his resurrection, Jesus is worshipped as God. Why is that not an offense? It's an offense to the Jews. But why is that not an offense? Technically speaking, worship, is bowing down, giving allegiance to, bowing before the only one who is truly worthy of worship. That is God. But in the New Testament, this bowing down is done before Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God. That's a demonstration of the New Testament. He was worshipped at his birth and he's worshipped at his resurrection. Why? After his resurrection, because he's worthy of worship. Interestingly, it is the same word that the devil used in Matthew chapter 4 when he says to Jesus, if you only what bow before me or worship me, I will give you all this glory. Why does he say that? Because worship means showing allegiance to the thing you bow before. He's asking 
Jesus, who is God, to show allegiance or worship him as what? God. Worship means that you've pledged your existence and life to the thing you bow before. And Jesus responds and says, you shall not bow down or pledge allegiance to anything other than the Lord your God. There's only one that is worthy of worship. No one else deserves worship. Go over to Exodus chapter 34. This is that same word, shachar, in Hebrew that relates to bowing down. There are other words, but these are the, this is the most prominent. Exodus chapter 34, listen to verse 14. For you shall worship no other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. <laughs> People stumble over this word. Jealous. Well, he's a jealous God. I, I, be, I believe it was Oprah who said when she read this, she's, I don't, want, I don't want that God. I don't want the God of the Bible. I don't want a jealous God. I'll tell you what jealousy means, and I'll tell you in a moment. But look at that word worship. This is the strongest negation that you can find in the Hebrew language. It literally means you shall never, never bow before anything else as God. In other, words, you will, in other words, you will never pledge allegiance or bow before anything as if they are me, God. Why? For Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Well, what does this word jealous mean? Turn over to Psalm 69. People go insane over the fact that the Bible says that God is a jealous God. Well, I'm going to show you that there's a different nuance that is implicit in the meaning of the word. And jealous is appropriate. 69 verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. You see that word zeal is the word jealous. It means to be passionate about a thing and so protect the thing you are passionate about. So put that in context of God whose name is jealous. Is that God is passionate about God. God is zealous about God, not you. God is passionate about his glory. And so God acts to protect the sanctity of his glory. And so when anybody becomes a glory thief, God strikes him down. You see it happen quite often in the Old Testament. God acts. There is an unrelenting, passionate zeal and commitment of God for his own glory because God is zealous for himself. 
In fact, this is not a mood. This is not jealousy as when a man pursues a girl and then finds out that another guy is making eyes for that girl and oh, the jealousy kicks in. You know, then the chest comes out. Vat mag No, not, that is not that jealousy. This is God acting to protect himself or his glory. God is zealous for himself. Not for anyone or anything else. God is zealous for his own glory. That means that he has the right to act when people try to steal his glory. That is very important to remember. Anything that is bowed down as God is a glory thief. And God will not treat lightly with that. So he protects his glory. God is intolerant of glory thieves. Isaiah 42 verse 8. I am Yahweh. That is my name. Well, in Exodus 34, 14, it says jealousy is his name. Well, because he's passionate about himself. And here he says, that is my name, Yahweh, uh, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Uh, I'm, I'm busy with a, an article that relates to how prophecy and the requirement of prophecy from a divine being is an expression of who God is. Um, idols cannot prophesy. Cannot. Nostradamus was not a prophet. Sorry, guys. He, he was not. He was insightful, but not a prophet. Isaiah 48. Do, do, do people still know who Nostradamus is? I'm presuming. <laughs> Verse 9. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. So I restrain it. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you. Uh, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not Give to another. God is passionate about his own glory. When we bow before anything other than God, we attribute worth and value to that thing as if it is God. That is taking glory away from God and giving it to something that does not deserve it. As I said, this is not a mood of God. This is an essential attribute of God. God is right to be jealous or zealous or passionate about his glory. Why? Because God is not created. He exists for himself. So everything that he creates, he creates for himself. For by your will, they are created for him. Through him and to him, all things exist for God and for his glory. The fundamental issue in worship is attributing glory to the God who is worthy of 
glory. Giving that reserved glory to anything or anyone else is idolatry. Wherever God speaks about protecting his glory, it is most commonly in the context of idolatry with regards to Israel. This is why getting worship right is such a fundamental issue. Psalm 29 verse 2 says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Let me read it correctly. Ascribe to Yahweh, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Look at verse 2. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due to his name. Worship Yahweh in the splendor or the beauty of holiness. There's a connection to the deserved glory of God and worship. When we worship, we give him what he rightfully deserves. And God rightfully deserves all the glory that we can give in this life. Worship relates to giving glory to God who rightly deserves it. So yes, there is this bowing down and the pledging of allegiance and giving of the entire person to the thing that they bowed down before. True worship is saying all of that, that I, I pledge allegiance, I bow before, I give you glory because you are the only one who deserves it. That is worship. Understanding who he is must cause a worshipful worshipful response in the worshiper. It's knowing who he is. Notice that God always leads with, this is my name, Yahweh. This is who I am. And so therefore, worship me. Again, worship is ascribing worth to God. Idolatry is ascribing worth reserved for God to anything other than God. When we move from focusing, exalting, attending our hearts to God, to anything other, anything other than God, in the act of worship, we have entered the realm of idolatry. The only worship that God accepts is worship that is caused by the Holy Spirit and that aligns with truth. This means that there is a narrow line between true worship and idolatry. There's a very narrow line between bowing before God and pledging allegiance to Him and bowing before a thing or a person and pledging allegiance to it or them. So worship is a proper response to who God is and what He deserves. What are the elements of worship? Is singing... Worship, is it an act separate from preaching? Are slow songs worship and fast songs praise? You laugh that people believe, I used to believe that. That's generally what you think of worship, you know. So when the music goes fast, oh, we're praising now. And then when the music flows, now we're worshiping. No. Neither of the above. So then, 
When does a church engage in worship? The entire enterprise of gathering together as saints is an act of worship. The entire enterprise. That means from the very moment of our first prayer to the last prayer is an act of worship. You're worshiping now. As you give attention to the word of God and, and, and not thinking of anyone or anything else, you're worshiping God. As you make notes in honor of the Lord and wanting to be faithful to the Lord, that is an act of worship. You are trying to, to learn more about your God and as a natural response to that, you not only worship Him, but you obey Him, which is an act of worship. It's the Hebrew word eved. It's, it's the act of being obedient and serving Him. So worship is not only bowing before Him, but responding to Him in faithful obedience. Everything we do when we meet is to be a worshipful act. When Israel was given the law, one of the acts that God required of them in Deuteronomy was to repeat the law to the children. When they wake up, when they sit down, when you go out into the fields, when you walk by the wayside, speak the words of the law to them. Why? So that they can know who I am and rightly respond to me. The book of Leviticus speaks about the holiness of God. If you know he's holy, what is the rightful response? Well, worship him. The book of Exodus speaks about God's work in delivering Israel. And if you know what God did for you, what is the rightful response? Well, worship him. Genesis speaks about God's creative power to create all things, nations, people, creation. If you know who he is and what he does, what is the rightful response? Worship him. The law in and of itself directs us to know who God is and requires a rightful response of us. The purpose of the church is to worship. Let me say it this way. The purpose of the gathering of the church is not evangelistic. The purpose is not evangelistic. Because often I hear, well, you don't preach the gospel. I'm thinking, well... I don't think you understand the gospel. We are preaching the gospel because we exalt Christ and make Him the source of our salvation and make Him the worth of our worship. That is the gospel. You are looking for specific sermons that is evangelistic. That is not the purpose of our worship. That is not the purpose of our uh, gathering. The purpose of our gathering is to worship God. This is why the church gathers together. There may be evangelistic sermons when we are in those passages. But we meet to make much of him. The attitude of every believer as they come in with the saints must be to bring glory to God. We pray with the brethren. We agree with them in prayer. We agree with the teaching. We sing along with one another. We sing to each other. All of what we are doing, we set our minds on God. Prayers, singing, preaching, teaching, giving, thanksgiving, serving, testimony, baptism, excommunication, exhortation, or exaltation. All of these are acts of worship that the church engages in. And must be done for the glory of God. This lays the groundwork for our discussion on worship.
how much time do I have left? Knowing that worship must be Godward and Christ-honoring, knowing that worship sets our affection on Him and not anyone or anything else, lest we enter idolatry, knowing that all we should do should be an expression of God. How does that look? This enters the realm of distinctives. I'm going to answer this by showing that what worship is, and then finish next week with what true worship is. How is worship seen today? There are three ways in which worship is effective, if affected um, in, in the church. And three distinctives that we want to avoid. Number one, emotionalism. Number two, existentialism. And number three, experience. Emotionalism, existentialism, and then experience. Underneath that, there are various other categories, and we will look at that as we go through it. So number one, the extreme of emotionalism, and you can put in brackets, sentimentalism, because they go together. What is emotionalism? Emotionalism is the undue, excessive expression Display or personal response of varying emotions. It's in the word emotionalism. Emotionalism must not be confused with emotion. The Bible does command us to, to have emotion. We are to be joyous. We are to be glad. Emotion can range from gladness to madness. Not that we are commanded to be mad, but that's emotion. These are emotions that God gave us. In Psalm 102, we are commanded to serve the Lord with joy and gladness. Those two things, joy and gladness, are emotions. God welcomes emotion that is focused on Him as a response to who He is. Interestingly, the word serve in that um, verse, Psalm 100 verse 2, is the word for worship. It's eved. To, to, to serve or worship. It's a, it's a synonym for, for worship. These emotions in worship are appropriate. I love it when I see uh, people expressing themselves in emotion and some are smiling or glad. There's the opposite to that where people worship um, with no emotion. They're just like, you know, there's nothing there. And I wonder about certain people like that. I mean, I don't know if you watch rugby. And I had the privilege of watching rugby with a few people in the church. And they are very impassioned. I won't mention names like um, Hilton and Jerome. <laughs> My word. There's emotion in that. Now, I don't expect that kind of emotion to come out in, in worship. But emotion is a part of who we are. God created us to have emotion. Emotionalism is going beyond the natural emotion. It's being controlled by, it's an excessive expression of emotion. It's the condition or state where emotions run wild and it controls the individual rather than the individual being in control of his emotion. 
Unchecked emotion is the, is the result of emotionalism. In those cases, it is your emotion that directs your action. That can be really dangerous. Women are, in most cases, blamed of being emotional. What do you expect? God created them to be emotional. That's who they are. But being controlled by emotion is not a woman attribute. Have you seen certain men? I'm just saying, you know certain people in this church. Don't look around, don't look around. <laughs> they are controlled by the emotion when it comes to certain things. That's not a feminine attribute. That's a human attribute. And it can be dangerous. The danger of this is that emotion is detached from a proper understanding of the word and spirals into spasms of sensational and irrational episodes. Emotionalism can lead to irrational action. I'll prove that in a moment's time. Distinction in worship that sets a church aside from emotionalism is necessary because Today, there's a wave of experience and emotion that permeates worship. One of the charges laid against those of us who are not in favor of emotionalism is that we are stoic, unresponsive, unemotional in worship. And that we don't understand that they are sincere and spiritual. Because emotionalism, in their mind, equals sincerity and spirituality. In churches today, emotionalism is seen in the lack of attention given to, take note of this, the sense of the word and in the deficiency of understanding the author's meaning. Because meaning doesn't mean anything to them. Experience does. As long as I have a moment with the Lord, that is more important than understanding what the Lord is saying. There's an overwhelming emphasis today in the church on how it makes me feel. Personal sincerity, private spirituality, or practically what I can get from it. In essence... It is all about who? Me. That's what emotionalism focuses on. This is the danger, is that worship has shifted from focus on God to focus on self. Turn over to 1 Kings. Let me prove it from Scripture. 1 Kings 18. The danger of worship that is not focused on God is that it can affect the activity of the worshiper. Most of you know the section, 1 Kings 18, I'm going to read from verse 25. <clears throat> 
Elijah said up to them, uh, has given, given them a challenge up to this point, well, let's see whose God is real. And you call upon your God, and I'll call upon my God, but you go ahead. He's almost mocking them. Look at verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it. It's so interesting. Elijah (laughs) makes a suggestion, and they follow. And called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. Saying, oh, well, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, now it's the half day, I mean, they've been going oh, half the morning on this. Elijah mocked them, saying, cry loud, cry loud. For he is a God. Either he is missing, or he is relieving himself. <laughs> or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. So cry louder. Come on. You know, maybe maybe he's falling asleep. You're not doing enough. Verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after they custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of, uh, upon them. And as the midnight passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. Yeah, that's where raving comes from. But there was no voice, and no one answered, no one paid attention. What a moment. There's excessive expression of emotion here. I'm going to give it to you. Verse 26. Strange physical demonstration. They limped around. The word is literally they were springing about. Ever seen that? Ever been to a show? Mm, say my next. Literally springing about, jumping around and over the altar. Very strange behavior in worship. Verse 28. Intense, loud screaming. Granted, it was Elijah that mocked him and said, cry louder, maybe he's asleep. They cried aloud. The the verb is intensified. Um, In Hebrew, there's a couple of ways in which you can intensify it. You can repeat the same word twice or repeat the second word in a different form, but it's the same root word, and that's what's happening here. It's intensified. They intensely appealed and pleaded and cried in an ongoing way before their God. Ever heard that before? Ever seen that? I've been in some churches where there's been crying and pleading and screaming, crying and screaming, along with the jumping. And then verse 28, they did personal harm, engaged in irrational actions. They cut themselves. Have you seen that before? Maybe not the cutting, but irrational actions associated with worship. Why does this take place? Because emotions have overrun the capacity to rationally think about what they are doing. Controlled by the emotions. Controlled by the moment. They were pursuing the moment more than a pursuit of God. 
Why do these things sound so familiar? Because it's still happening today. I've been in churches where there was a limping around in front of the church or around the back of the church. I've been in churches where there's been screaming and crying aloud as if God is deaf. I've been in churches where where shaking and kicking and spitting and smacking is taking place because that is spiritual. It's the moment that is the pursuit and not God. Often this is put under the canopy of just experience. And yes, there is a connection, but the force behind driving them to that experience is what? Emotionalism, driven and controlled by the emotions because that is what they're pursuing. Why do you think people get involved in strange actions like, I think it was in Natal, right? Uh, Or maybe Natal, because a lot of things happen in Natal. Drinking bleach, eating grass. Why do people get involved in things like that? As an act of worship, because they are taken up by the moment and they pursue the moment more than they pursue God. They worship the thing, the created thing, rather than the creator. Do you think that these false prophets were sincere? Do you think that these false prophets were dedicated and committed to Baal? By all means, they were absolutely sincere, absolutely dedicated, absolutely committed to their God, to the degree that they would cause personal harm. Yet all of the genuflecting, All of these actions that they are doing did not please the Lord because they were engaged in false worship. Emotionalism does not equal true worship. Let me put it this way. Outward demonstration of emotion does not mean true worship is taking place. Because even cults have outward demonstration of worship. You think they were sincere? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Do you think people who eat grass and drink bleach and get bitten by sex, they are sincere? Oh yeah. Definitely, they are sincere. But absolutely not worshiping God. You cannot worship God in falsity. You remember the words of Jesus? The Father seeks Worshippers who worship him in what? Spirit and in what? In truth. Foundational to worship is truth. Foundational to worship that God will receive is submission to the truth. Rational actions, thinking, and reason are replaced by excessive emotional activity. So yes, they were sincere and they may have been spiritual in their realm of worship, but they were not truly worshiping God. Emotionalism and sincerity does not necessarily mean a relationship with God. And often we we think of a person who's sincere, oh shame, they mean well. And and, you know, I I really, I, I feel for them because they mean well. That doesn't mean anything to God. You may mean well, but you may mean well incorrectly. God is not 
concerned about your sincerity. He's concerned about your security of your salvation. You can be sincerely wrong. When God is not the object of worship, then no matter how sincere the intentions, no matter how intense the experience, no matter how uplifting the moment, it is still idolatry. That's the danger. Why? Because God is not the focus. In the modern church, holy rolling, spiritual spitting, and don't laugh. It's true, it happens. Screaming and kicking is considered expressions in worship. Show me that in scripture. The only people that were screeching and screaming was either false prophets or demon-possessed people, but not Christians or people of God who've been changed by God. That's idolatry or demonic. Hyper-emotionalism is demonstrated in ecstatic, uncontrollable, so-called holy actions. That is not Godward, and that is not God-given. So you say, don't judge. You don't know them. I don't need to know them. Scripture condemns them, and that's all I need to know. Does the Scripture adequately support what they are doing? The answer is no, absolutely no. So we remain distinct in our worship when it comes to emotionalism. There's the external demonstration of emotionalism. And I'm going to step on some toes. But there may be some moments where there's passive emotionalism. In certain churches, there's this idea of the nudging or the moving of the spirit. It's not as expressive as hyper-emotionalism, but it's still emotionalism. The spirit moves from Nate to Gainon. It goes from row to row, and then he stops. And you are chosen. And so you respond. And you have a moment. It's your moment. And then the spirit moves on, and he stops. And he goes on and on and on. This expression of emotionalism is linked to sentimentality. The moment is far more important than what is being said. Doesn't matter if the guy is talking a whole lot of baloney. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if he's rambling on and talking a whole lot of nonsense. It does not matter. Why? Because the sentiment behind it is shame. He really wants to worship. Shame, she really means well. No. The underlying sentiment, I should say the underlying reality is that there is actually spiritual arrogance and ignorance in that. As if the spirit is not moving up and down the row and then selecting people because now you have said that the spirit chose me to stand up. That's arrogance. That's making you more important than anyone else. And you become the center of attraction. That is not Godward. That is not God-centered. This may be a milder expression of it, but it's still an expression of emotionalism linked to sensationalism. 
linked to sentimentalism. When your tradition and your sentiment of the moment is far more important than God, you're stepping in the realm of idolatry. What's the danger? Number one, it detracts from a worshipful reverence for God. Number two, it exalts man and demotes God. In every respect where emotionalism is at work, there man is exalted and God is demoted. Number three, it is selfish and self-pleasing. That does not drive you towards God. It actually drives you away from God. Worship must have emotion, but emotions that is stirred by the truth and not by your own feelings or your own pursuit of a moment with God. When you come to understand the sovereignty of God, when you come come to understand the grace of God, when you come to understand the holiness of God, when you come to understand the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it is only right that you worship him for who he is. But the danger of emotionalism in worship is that the objective truth no longer controls the worshiper, but sentiment does. The implication of truthless worship is indicative of a greater problem. The the problem is that truth no longer holds authority in your life. Let me give you an example and an implication. How does sentiment and emotionalism affect our thinking? Often the case is made with regards to Christian songs or Christian music that, well, not all the songs are bad. So we listen over and over to the one song that is good. And you avoid all. So we say, well, you know, we eat on the flesh and kick out the bones. Okay, I'll give you that. Eat the flesh, kick out the bones. Let's see what Jesus says about that. What's wrong with this? What's dangerous about this? What we do not realize is that slowly our wall and our pillars of discernment are being eroded. The more you expose yourself to deviant doctrines, the more your discernment erodes. Which means heresy becomes a little bit more difficult to detect. And in one area where it is really difficult to detect is in singing, in song. Why do we have the struggle? Well, because we become emotionally attached to certain groups. Ever heard of Amy Grant? I used to love Amy Grant. Shame. She, she had a good voice, I think. I can't remember now. <laughs> Bought series that uh, she had out. Our sentiment overrides our sensitivity and sensibility. Were there some dodgy songs? Yeah. (coughs) But we, we put up with it. The worrying aspect is that the church and believers no longer believe that the wolves can come in sheep clothing. So we eat the meat, spit out the bones. That is the problem with exposing yourself to people who are not doctrinally sound. We, owe, we think that the only way that wolves can walk into the church is in the pulpit or sitting in the pew. But no, no not through music. No, no, let's not touch music. You know, music is one, worship, I said to my wife, is one of the most sensitive 
aspects of church life. You touch on worship, you can lose the worship team. As you have to, you may have noticed, I don't care. Because worship is not about the worship team. It's about God. And should we lose the worship team or, or anybody in the worship team because of our conviction, that is fine by me. That, that, that is honestly fine by me. Why? Because I'm not here to be, to be played to. I'm here to worship God. We think that listening to these songs do not mean that we support the, the bad behavior or the ministry. And that may be true. We, we may not support it. Even though you bought the CD. We may not support it in our theology. and We may not back it. But you are supporting it. Because you are buying it. Which means it can just keep on being produced. Let me ask you this question. Does it matter what a false teacher or a false prophet believes? Yes, right? Would you quote a false teacher or a false prophet? Even if he says a good thing. No. Who does that? Unless there's something wrong with you. No, nobody does that. Why then do we have a different standard when it comes to theology sung through songs? Because that is what music, Christian music is, right? It's theology through songs. We must make a distinction between truth and error. Not between good songs and bad songs. So why is distinction required in worship? Because God requires it in worship. God seeks worshipers that will worship him in what? And in truth. Spirit and truth. God requires it. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. I am determined to finish the sermon. I have three pages left, so give me some time. I'll take five minutes of your time. Hold me to five. If it's five, raise your hand and I will stop. I'm serious? Okay. Hebrews 12, verse 25. <clears throat> Not going to explain the context here, even though that would be helpful, but let me just read verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So truth, do not refuse him. For if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him. That is the truth who warns from heaven in the scriptures. At that time, uh, let me jump down, verse 28. Therefore, since that is true, since, since the truth has been given, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a what? consuming fire. This is the same God of the Old Testament. A God that does not deal well with glory thieves. He will judge with consuming fire those who take the place of God. So then, what is the connection? Truth has been given. So then, as a result of that, let us offer to God acceptable worship in the reverence and awe. Standard truth, net result, true worship. Worship, divorced from truth, regardless of how sincere it may be, is not worship. 
but idolatry. That is it. This is why distinction matters. Sadly, we have been desensitized to think in terms of rather the quality of the song in its composition instead of the value of the song in terms of its theological clarity. We think more of the composition than the clear message that it is giving. The greater problem is that truth has not become the guiding principle in our decisions when it comes to worship. Okay, so let's get to the eating the meat, spitting out the bones. What does scripture speak about that? Scripture makes no distinction between well-meaning false prophets and wolves in sheep clothing. It says you don't listen to them. You don't submit to them. You don't bow to them. You don't eat the food that they give. You reject them and you reject their message. That is true of false teachers. Why is it different when it comes to music then? A person who writes error in singing is a false teacher. Let me put it this way. You cannot sip from the cup of poison without being poisoned by it. Make sense? You cannot associate with false teaching and think you will remain unaffected by the teaching. Worship and singing is not merely singing. In Ephesians 5, 18, God tells us what worship in the church related to singing is exactly. This is what it is. Teaching one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I think it's in Colossians chapter 3, 16, it says, admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The act of singing means that you're taking truth and you're actually teaching and admonishing God's people. So then, if truth is not in the song, what then are we doing? You're not teaching and admonishing one another, but you're disseminating heresy. What should we do with ministries who sing some good songs, but other materials are suspect? Let me give you a principle from scripture. 1 Corinthians 5, you don't have to turn to it, verse 6. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I think that makes absolutely clear, right? I know the context there is sexual immorality, but what Paul says is that if you understand this principle, you will avoid anything that can invade and permeate the church of Jesus Christ. A little leaven will leaven the entire congregation. That's why we have Shanton and Wayne who are making decisions <laughs> with regards to song selection. And they've done a pretty good job, don't you think? Um, we, we, we thank the Lord for the clarity of thought and for the distinctions that we have in worship. There is no such thing as eating the bones and spitting... <laughs> eating the bones. That's a dog. <laughs> eating the meat and spitting out the bones. That's five minutes. There is no such thing. When it's heresy, it's heresy. Truth can be on the lips of a false prophet, but the false prophet is never concerned about the truth. Make sense? It can be on the lips of a false prophet, which means then when singing is erroneous, what on earth are we doing listening to it? Be careful. Protect yourself, protect your heart, protect your family. Scrutinize every word of every song. Because in it, there is teaching that may drive you away from God rather than to God. 
So we avoid the extreme of sentimentalism and emotionalism because our foundation is the word of God. If emotionalism is not what God wants in worship, then what does please him in worship? John chapter 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If you want to know what that means, come back next week. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful to you for such great kindness and the revelation of who you are. You are a God who is sovereign of all things, a God that protects his own glory and majesty, a God who cares about his own dignity and value. And you will act. When we give glory to anything other than you, you will act. May not in this life, but you will act. You will judge glory thieves and those who attribute glory to things rather than you. Forgive us for the lack of understanding and for the lack of the pursuit of true worship. Help us to submit to you and to your word and to do what honors you, Lord. Help us to apply discernment and wisdom in reading and listening to what we are listening to. We pray for guidance as we seek to honor you, Lord. We are needy people and need you to change our lives. We give thanks in Christ's name. Amen.